Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast, episode 58. I hope and pray you are doing well. Uh, and that is this beautiful weather, at least that we're having here in Denver, descends upon us around the country uh, as an end to online school for our kids is in sight that you in this moment find yourself whole and hopeful in this season. And maybe this episode will serve both toward wholeness and hope for many of you. And I say that because I know from interactions uh, with you that many regular listeners of the podcast have experienced either wounding from the church or for, from a church leader, or maybe from a friend or a family who would call themselves Christian or any combination of the above. Or maybe it's not necessarily that you were wounded, but that you find yourself in new territory with regard to your faith and how you understand God, life, the Bible, the church, the universe we live in. And if any of that sounds like you, then I promise today is the episode just for you. Because today we're going to explore what it's like if you've ever been kicked out of your Christian community. Or maybe you had to leave a faith community because you no longer felt at home. We're going to talk about what it's like to be on a journey toward a renewed expression of your faith. Our guest today calls this process The Shift, which is the title of his latest book. In it, he writes about the journey forward and how it is a mixture of freedom and fear, love and loneliness, empowerment and pain. But on the side of this faith shift awaits a wider, freer, more peace-filled reality. The man who wrote this book is my friend Colby Martin. Colby is the author of Unclobber, Rethinking Our Misuse of the Bible on Homosexuality. He and his wife, Kate, co-pastor the faith community they founded together called Sojourn Grace Collective in San Diego, where they live with their four sons. Colby, my friend, welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Hi. It's an honor to be your friend. Like, honestly, <laughs> first and foremost, I just love that we are in each other's lives. And then, yeah, man, if, if you want to hit record while we have a conversation, that sounds delightful. So I'll do good it. to be here. And I feel the same. I feel the same. Um, so first off, I, I feel like every conversation begins with the question, how are you? Which mm. is really like, how are you doing in the midst of all of this? You and Kate and the boys. Yeah. So I imagine this will release while the world is still sort of holding its collective breath to see where the heck we're going with this coronavirus thing. So how are we? We are, yeah, we are in lockdown like the rest of California. Um, and fortunately, our family likes each other. We get along <laughs> well. So, so Kate and I, we have four boys and uh, for the most part, we all really get along well. We've been watching a ton of Survivor. So that's been Kate and mine's. We've, we haven't missed a season of Survivor since it came out, right? Uh, so that's been Are our you show. Serious? Yeah, that's been our show for years. And then <laughs> about six months ago, before quarantine happened, we're like, I think our boys might like watching this show. And so we w went back to like the beginning and started watching seasons with them, all four of them, age range 15 to 8. They love the show. So oh my goodness. Since, since lockdown started, we might be watching two or three episodes a day, Michael. I'm not lying. <laughs> who okay, here's some here's some fun trivia. Who's the guy who fell into the fire when he was trying to stoke it, like blowing on it and yeah. he inhaled smoke? Mike Michael something? Michael Scoopin. Yes. Uh -huh. I, that guy lived in Michigan and he started making the rounds and wanted to come and speak at the church no, he didn't. that I yeah, that I worked at. And so I actually <laughs> interacted with him a bunch. Um, and it was like four miracles of survivor or something. Oh was my like God. <laughs> That's funny. Yes. 
So that's about as much interaction as I've had with that show. It's it's Kate and mine's favorite. That's and, and it holds up, man. They're doing their fortieth season right now, and we're watching it every Wednesday. Forty 40th. seasons. Yeah. So twenty years, two two seasons a year. Show's been on a long time, bro. We're old. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that is unbelievable. Oh my goodness. Okay. So the, the second thing is this is your second time on the podcast. So welcome back, I should say. Um, in the first podcast, we talked about your first book on yeah. clobber. Um, so what, if anything has changed for you, um, obviously writing the book, the shift that we'll talk about today, but what has changed for you in your work and your life in the last two years that might be helpful for our listeners to know? I think, uh, part of what's changed is I, I just think my, my work has expanded a bit. I don't necessarily just mean uh, a larger reach, although sure that might've happened as well, but I think it's expanded. Whereas, so my first book took on one particular topic, right? The way that uh, Christianity has long used the Bible to justify discrimination against those who identify LGBTQ. And, and that took on, you know, that was a very narrow topic, but then I think what that allowed me to do is it, it, it really sort of began to expand not just how Christians have historically interacted with this topic, but then once you start to pull at one thread on the edge of sort of this this web of conservative Christianity, it begins to untangle, well, you can pick metaphors, untangle a web of messes, or it knocks over a series of dominoes, or it's one house of cards, whatever. Uh, I, I freely move in and out of metaphors, as you probably <laughs> picked up on as, I, as you read the book. Um, so I think it's just, it's expanded in the last couple of years to all sorts of topics that people interact with and engage with as they go throughout their shift. Nice. So and what led you then to, to write the book? So I think you and I have very similar trajectories, not only personally, but vocationally. So a, a good chunk of time in ministry in more conservative evangelical context. And then we internally had our own shift moving away from that towards something more progressive. And now we're in this, uh, we're sort of those two worlds are merging and uh, together and we're having a, a public vocational ministry in a more progressive Christian context. And I've been in that space for about six years now. And I've noticed in those last six years interacting with hundreds, if not thousands of people at this point, whether it's through my church or online or at conferences or as a result of my first book, what I've noticed is that not only are people shifting at rapid rates. So like we know well the data, not just of people leaving the church, but of people just moving away from a more conservative uh, worldview. I've noticed that people's journeys, while they're all unique to them and they have their own peculiar uh, specifics, there were these uh, undeniable common um, threads that showed up. These themes that happened of, uh, it seemed like, Everybody had these uh, resonances of, of fear uh, on, on their shift. Um, some sort of like uh, resentment or anger even at where they came from. Uh, confusion as to like, if I don't have those beliefs anymore, then what do I have? Uh, loneliness, so much loneliness as people lost their old communities or were, were abandoned by their old uh, circles. And so in my own work, I started to try and uh, name not only name these various obstacles, but then be like, okay, I've traversed this territory myself and I've helped people in our church sort of navigate this. Is there a way that I could try to speak to some of these common themes in a way that might help 
people survive this shift and maybe even find some sort of thriving on the other end. Yes. And one of the things I said to you before we started recording is one of the things I so appreciated about not just the words in the book, but the tenor and the tone is you write from a very pastoral perspective. Um, You're not overly cynical and it's not a bashing of one side. It really is, as you talk about, like it's almost a survival guide and it lends a lot of hope. Um, The the, the most um, deprecating stories in the book are about yourself. (laughs) Um, And so I really appreciated that. And the other thing is, I told Kobe, for those of you who are listening, we could, I could have gone chapter by chapter through this book because there's not one chapter wasted on addressing a, a part of this journey that feels like it's not actually an integral part of this journey. And it, I know that because like you, I've been on it and I've, um, I'm, I'm continually in a continued conversation with people about it. But one of the things I, I, I do want to go through a few of the chapters, I kind of picked my favorites. These are I love it. my top, however many chapters I'm highlighting. Of course, I'm going to start with the introduction, which is technically not a chapter. Dude, I love a good introduction. I, every sermon has like just the love. <laughs> my wife is always like, babe, just get to the point. I'm like, no, I got to save her. I got to really set up the point. I, so introductions are, yeah. So I'm doing, I'm doing you right. By I'm it, so right? excited that you're starting with the introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so you write this. Terms such as progressive and Christian are difficult to define. They carry about as many meanings as there are people who use these terms. I trust that you will use, edit, or ditch these labels depending on their utility and value for you. Now, for me personally, I read that, and that felt really inviting um, because more and more I find myself not liking the term progressive or conservative because they almost seem too far-reaching and they are trying to describe one group that seems to have so many facets. So I want to start there. What do you make of the term progressive along with the term conservative? Um, because there seems to be so many people, especially those who listen to this podcast, I would say, I don't know that I'm either of those things. Yeah. I think labels, I find labels incredibly helpful and incredibly valuable and incredibly useful until they're not. Um, so for me, labels are a way to put some sort of uh, some sort of handholds on a particular experience, uh, and and they're useful to help define and describe a person's uh, reality. And and then of course there might come a time where that no longer serves them. But I don't. So for me, when I talk about progressive Christian, what I'm trying to name is that there is some sort of spectrum that we're talking about here. And I know it's not a two-dimensional spectrum. It's not, there's conservative on one end and progressive on the other end with this sort of linear movement. I know it's more, it's, there's more dimensions there going on, but it's also kind of true that there is a spectrum when it comes to uh, whether it's Christian religiosity or, or beliefs or practice, there is a spectrum where you go to one end and it is more conservative and you go towards mm-hmm. the other end and it is more liberal. So I think about like the United States, there is biases and expectations and stereotypes with sort of West coast people and East coast people. And on any, either coast, you can find people who are like, West coast doesn't define me. I'm more than that. And that's true. And also pick any point in America and you can be like, if you go that way, you're more heading towards the West. If you go that way, you're heading more towards the East. So it's just trying to name that there is a spectrum. Mm-hmm. So I try to give people 
permission in the front to at least know where I'm coming from when I use the terms. And like you read, give them liberty to use them if they're helpful or not. Um, and I, a lot of people in our community don't resonate with the term Christian anymore. Totally fine. I get it. For me, it's just a way to say that I am somewhat connected to this heritage um, in which I was raised in and in which my culture largely sits in. Uh, and so to the extent that the term is helpful for people, use it. If not, I totally get it. I don't want to put anybody in any boxes, um, but it can help sort of describe at least this movement, this journey, this shifting away from the East Coast. If I'm just going to, if I'm just going to use those terms, I'm just going to say the East Coast is, is the lesser one and the West Coast is the better one. <laughs> and there's no bias in that. There's All I whatsoever. keep hearing is, what is it? East Coast to the West Coast, no diggity. Remember that song? <laughs> yes. Or no east diggity. side to the West Side. That's yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm like, yeah, the East Coast, West Coast thing, man. That's like, that's like early nineties hip hop. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about. <laughs> okay. Well, so the other term, well, there's actually several terms um, and we'll get to those, but you, you write about the word faith and this is something, honestly, I think this is the part that wrote me into the book. The good news is for those of you listening, it's like on page 19, so you don't have to read very far. Um, but you, you write this, the most common statements reveal concerns around the state of one's faith. Frequently, I hear things like, I think I've lost my faith or what happened in my faith or my faith just isn't what it used to be. And then you go on to explain what kind of, how we're looking at this idea of faith and what we mean by that word faith. Can you, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. What I, what I've noticed over the years is that for myself, and I think for many people who grew up in more conservative Christian contexts, for me, it was a real evangelical flavor, but there's other flavors. What I noticed is that of the two lexical categories, noun and verb, the idea of faith has primarily been presented and packaged and given to us as just the noun version of faith. And so what we've come to identify the word faith as is to be, oh, my faith is, my, is the collection of the things that I believe. And that is just a noun. So we possess it. We have, we have faith or we have a faith. Uh, and what happens is because it's a noun or we think of it only as a noun, then it becomes subject to uh, alteration, deterioration, loss. Suddenly it's something that I can lose or, or that its quality can be affected. And what I've noticed over the last few years is how necessary it's been for me to bring in this other lexical category of faith as a verb. Faith isn't just a noun, something we have. Faith is also something that we do. It's a, it's a, I talked about it as a posture of openness and trust. Mm. It's this sense that out there, there is a light and we're kind of just constantly turning toward it. And what it freed me up to do is it freed me up to say, oh, faith is much bigger than just the things I believe. It's much bigger than just a noun. Therefore, as I go along in my life and I'm, uh, my, my beliefs are shifting, they're changing, they're, they're dropping altogether, or they're just in complete disarray. I don't even know what I believe anymore. That might be where a person's at. Instead of thinking, well, therefore, I've lost my faith, or therefore, um, my faith just isn't what it used to be, all of that is describing the noun sort of faith. If you can add in the verb aspect of faith, then suddenly when your when your beliefs start shifting, disappearing, whatever, now when you ask the question, what happened to my faith? You can be like, nothing. You still got it. And it's doing exactly what it's supposed uh, to be doing. Yeah. So I, I think it's really important that we have the verb. Uh, uh, an analogy or something that I think people would understand is uh, the idea of love. 
So love also exists in these two lexical categories of noun and verb. And I think we can really identify with the idea of still doing the love actions for people, even if the feelings of love are absent. So you might, uh, you might be in a really clunky spot with a romantic partner or a spouse or whatever, and the feelings might not be there. Like you don't have the warm gushies, you don't have the sense of intimacy, the feelings, but you know that love is more than just a thing that you have. It's a thing that you do. And so I think in a similar way, if we can restore or, or, or for some people reintroduce this idea of faith as a verb, now we've, we've broadened this idea of faith and people can stop in many ways, stop sort of beating yourself up for thinking that you don't have faith anymore. No, you do. You do. Yes. It, it reminds me, there was a couple that came, um, came to me one time and, uh, one person in the relationship was in a place where they were asking significant questions about the historic Christian faith. I should say not the historic, the evangelical Christian faith. Um, and her partner was really, really concerned and kept saying she, things like she's struggling with her faith. Yeah. Saying things like I, we agreed upon this. Now she's losing her faith. And just that term was so hurtful for her because by, in her mind, she was working on her faith. That's she right. was working through yeah. what she believed. She was not, faithing. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Being faith, almost like this idea of she was being faithful. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I love the way that you interact with that in the chapter. Um, we're just going to keep getting harder ones. Now we're going to talk about. Now we're going to talk about God. That's That'll great. Take like a couple minutes. I love it. No, no, no. It's good. It's good. It's good. So you have a chapter about God, um, and you also talk about God and gender. And here at DCC, we just did during Lent. We talked about the divine feminine. Mm. Um, but you say the following pages talking about this chapter. The following pages won't present a comprehensive explanation of the right ideas about the creator of the cosmos as that as though that could even be done i offer no outline to organize a reconstructed view of who or what or why or even if god is and this is um something for me it's been like near and dear to my heart ever since i first read jewish commentary about when moses says to god what is your name and mm. god says i am what i am which is a in the jewish uh, the rabbis say, this is a statement of being. Mm. God is a verb. And it totally messed me up um, <laughs> in the best way possible. And Joseph Campbell, um, he talks about a lot about God. And he says, God is not a fact. A fact is an object in the field of time and space, an image in the dream field. God is no dream. God is no fact. God is a word referring us past anything that can be conceived of or named. Uh, which is just that statement alone you could probably spend years contemplating. But t- talk to us a little bit about this chapter, about uh, how you interact with this idea of God and the divine. What I noticed with people who were experiencing their shift was it didn't take long into their journey before suddenly they were unsure how to think about God anymore. And sometimes that was uh, catalyzed by things like realizing that prayers seemingly didn't get answered in the way they thought, um, or realizing that the idea that, uh, that a God would just sort of favor one particular religious expression or one type of people over others. Um, or the fact that, uh, we, we act as though God is somewhere existing in a, in a 
in the space and time as a, as a being, whatever it is, there's, there's a point where the whole idea of God becomes weird. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I tried to, you know, the idea of this was the most overwhelming chapter to write in the book. Cause how do you, how do you just give, I don't know, 4,000 words in a, in a book to the topic of God. Yeah, so let tried, me, and let me ask a quick question here. Yeah. When you talk about this idea of God that so many people were living with, what, what, what were some of the things that you heard that people were saying? Like, what, is it this idea of like, there's some dude with a white beard out there yeah. doing everything? So I think, so I think that's the sort of, um, reductive, uh, stereotype that, that it, it's not uncommon to have for of people in a more conservative or fundamental framework. The truth is, I don't think anybody really buys into the white man with a, a beard in the sky, except that they kind of do. They live as though that's true, even though they would, I think, never say that that's true. So this is what I think it gets sort of uh, complicated for people is they might, with a straight face, be like, no, I know that God's not a white guy in the sky with beard. And yet the way that they talk the way that they live their life reveals that on some level they do think that there is a being out there that's just bigger and greater than we are, but there's a being that lives somewhere uh, that that's then chooses to interact with the world in some ways at sometimes, and we can't really ever figure out why, but or how or when, but it happens. And so, I think what's the the one of the biggest jumps for people to make in their shift as it relates to God is the idea of moving away from the idea of God as a being, like you said, a, a fact, a sort of uh, a being that exists. You know, the, the biblical writers talked about God as being up there. And then we built telescopes and we're like, oh, there's nothing up there. So we switched our preposition to out there. Oh, God's just out there somewhere. And we still think in ways that there's a being out there somewhere. If we can detach from that just enough to allow ourselves to conceive of the possibility that God isn't a being that exists somewhere. I have found that to be an entirely scary and yet liberating shift to make, to move away from this idea that God is a being. Uh, and like I say in the book, and we, we act as though that being is more male than female, which is super troublesome because then maleness equals more godliness than femaleness. So the closer you move towards traditional male attributes, the, the closer you're getting to God. And that's that's got to change, right? So I talk about that in the book, that we need to stop just referring to God as a he. Um, but this idea of allowing God to be something different, other, more than, uh, than a being out there, I think is an incredibly liberating, albeit scary, but an incredibly liberating move to make as it relates to our attitude towards the divine. And, and why do you think for some people it's scary? Like, I mean, it, not even, let's not use the word scary. I'm, I'm thinking of a conversation I had with somebody about this several years ago. And I would say it wasn't, we hear scary and think, you know, like the movie Scream, which is also funny, um, but more uneasy maybe is a good word. Yeah. Why does this, in your experience, has this made some people uneasy? My instincts tell me is because as long as God is a being, then it is easier for us to conceive of having a personal relationship with a being, which makes a lot of sense, by the way. It's, it's not easy to conceive of what a personal relationship looks like with a 
non-being. That so I think there's a reason why, for instance, Jesus uses the metaphor of God as Father, uh, because we can relate to a being. We know what that's like. We have relationships to humans all the time. We have relationships even to animals. So to think of God as being is is easier for us to conceive of what that might be like to have a relationship with. So then, if you pull away the being part of it. Or if you take out even using pronouns for God, which I generally don't use anymore, and if I do, I make sure I'm using she and he, then I think for me where the unease comes from is like, well, so is are you saying it's just like Star Wars and the Force? Because I don't, how do you have a relationship to the Force? How do you have a relationship to energy? How do you have a relationship to Source? That doesn't, and so now you feel more alone in the universe because there's no big brother out there looking out for you. Um, you feel untethered. You feel unanchored. You're like, oh, that doesn't feel very good to just have this inanimate, non being corporeal substance. Like that, it just, you know what I mean? Like that loses the personal connection. So I think that's where the unease or the fear um, comes from. And it makes sense. I totally, totally get it. Yeah. And for those of you listening and, and, you know, you're hearing things like uh, you just talked about the force. Um, And one of the things, if you're feeling that unease, one of the things that I've recognized is a lot of what you hear Colby talking about a lot of what he writes about, a lot of what you hear many people talking about these days, there's the accusation by some, I'm not going to say all, of this is, I've heard everything from new age to heresy, Mm. or we're just trying to make God more palpable, all those things. But I want to read something to you, just a quote. Um, You can find it in, um, it's the Summa Contra Gentiles written by Thomas Aquinas. This is from the 11th century. This is a thousand years old. And he says this, then alone do we know God truly when we believe that God is far above all that man can possibly think of God. Let me read that again. Yeah. Then alone do we know God truly when we believe that God is far above all that man can possibly think of God. He also says, if you can explain it, it's not God. So Karl Barth Here's another theologian that was uh, born in the late 19th century, lived in the mid-20th and re- worked in the mid-20th. He talks about God as holy other, and Bart was a Swiss Reformed theologian. So if you're listening, it makes you uneasy. No, yes, it does. It makes it still at times makes me uneasy. Yeah. But these are not new things, and I think um, – one of the things we've talked about on the podcast before is what's happening in a lot of this shift is there's an unearthing of thought, theology, writing, thinking that has long existed in the church that all of a sudden we now have access to in a new way. Um, And it can be really helpful. And I'll add one thing that I heard Richard Rohr say um, when talking about this God being holy other is we know that God is personal because of Jesus that at some level, this God is, and if you read John's prologue and John's gospel, that is, uh, without him, nothing has been made. In the beginning was the word, the word was God, the word was with God in the beginning, that whatever this God is, and I've said this before from DCC, it might be unsettling for people to say, I don't know who or what God is. Um, but somehow within the Christian tradition, we say that that God is revealed in the life and in the suffering and the compassion, grace, and love of Jesus. So there is this personal dynamic to Mm -hmm. it. Um, 
And just because I'm currently in love with Rainer Maria Rilke, I'll, I'll read <laughs> I'll read his quote about this, which is far more poetic. He says, things are not all so comprehensible and expressible as one would mostly have us believe. Most events are inexpressible, taking place in a realm which no word has ever entered. And more inexpressible than all else are works of art, mysterious existences, the life of which, while ours passes away, endures. <laughs> By the way, that's in the book, Letters to a Young Poet. I read that book twice a year, so I recommend it highly. Um, I think you, you should, your next book should be about God. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> that'll be, I'll put, it, I'll put it fifth. I've already got ideas for three and four. I don't know if I'm ready to talk about God. This chapter was hard enough, man. The title of the book is OMG. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I love everything you just shared there. And it got me thinking, so what's coming up for me in this moment is I can imagine that possibly listeners, if if they are still in the midst of working through what they think about God are still asking some of the, the, the early questions of, of, um, in their shift as it relates to God. I, what I, and I think I even say this in in that chapter is you can just earmark this chapter and come back to it. Like if the things that I'm, that are, that I'm saying here aren't really making sense because I honestly, when people first started to talk to me about God as something other than just a being out there who exists, you know, the idea of the process theology of God doesn't exist. God insists. The first time I heard this, it was the most, uh, just jargony gobbledygook. It, it, I, I laughed it off as though it was just nonsense. Uh, because I couldn't, I could not at all conceive of anything other than God as a being who exists somewhere, which again, makes so much sense because that has been the model that has been handed to me and to many of us. And it is in some ways the easiest metaphor for God for us to wrap our minds around. We get it and we like things that we can get and understand. And what I want to say to the listener is if this whole segment has been just really weird and obnoxious, I, what I want to say is that is okay. Give yourself permission to, to not have this part of it figured out. And the reason yeah. why I think that's important to name is because we, those of us who came out of conservative Christian worlds, we were told that the most important thing to God, the thing that God cares about most is what we believe. And I, I think that that idea needs to be put to rest because I do not think that the thing that God cares about most is what humans believe between their ears. So my point is, is you can just not know what you think about God. You can just not have beliefs about God and it is okay. It really is okay. And maybe there'll come a day where enough furniture has been rearranged in your mind to where you can pick up an idea like God doesn't exist. God insists. And suddenly, oh, I think I can start to understand what that means now, but that takes time and it takes process. And I just want to give people permission to be in process on that and to not have answers and to know that God is totally okay with that. Yes. And to your point, I'm still in process on that. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> and I say that not like tongue in cheek, but yeah, if I, I mean, back to Aquinas, which that's probably the obnoxious part. I quoted Thomas Aquinas, but <laughs> Once I can wrap my mind around it, once I can explain it, I can safely assume what I, whatever I've wrapped my mind around and whatever I'm explaining, that's not God. That's right. I and 
one of the one of the things I remember hearing early on from my mentor was, I don't want a God I can explain because that God's probably not worthy of worship. <laughs> so there is this sense in which I think what you said early on, and again, you just heard, by the way, Colby's pastoral heart in what he just said, which I love, is we say we don't want a God we can wrap our mind around. But maybe if you're listening, one step you can take is say, but but do I really? And I'll be honest, um, there are many moments, many, many moments in which I want a God, not only that I can wrap my mind around, but one that I can manipulate to my ends. Yeah. Or one who's going to just tell me everything's okay. Or one who's going to affirm and confirm my previously held beliefs. Or in the words of the fearless Anne Lamott, one who's going to hate all the same people I do and love all the same people I yeah. do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think this is such a crucial, such a crucial and central part of this conversation because it involves so much of our ego. I'll speak for me. It involves so much of my ego, my desire to control, my desire to be certain. Um, and the constant invitation is let go in and in, in discover this endlessly knowable mystery that is mm. love. So yeah. We should just do a whole podcast on this sometime. Just on the <laughs> God shift. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But we, uh, I want to keep going because you have some great stuff great. in here. Um, All right. You talk about church and this one I love. Mm. Um, and, and you write one line in here stuck out to me. You said once a week, I receive the same kind of email from someone <laughs> in some part of the country. It begins with, I can't stand church and ends with, do you know of one in my city I could try. <laughs> and I can totally relate. Mm. Um, we receive emails. I receive emails all the time. Hey, I live in, I don't know, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, whatever it is. Um, but one of the things I find so interesting about this chapter and about just the moment that we seem to be in with so many in this shift as, as the word that you used is people seem very interested in still finding some sort of community of faith to which they can belong. And I'd, I'd love to hear you just talk about that a little bit. What is it that you sense and stirring in people who seem to want this? Yeah. I, I want to say right out the gate that, that, that it is enti entirely true that there are people that have undergone a shift that have left their conservative roots or been kicked out of their conservative communities and have never stepped foot in the church again, have sworn it off, and are doing really well. So that is a that is a a, a true trajectory that uh, I know there are people for whom that is uh, ha has been a life giving and I would say a healthy and good path for them. That being said, my intuition is, and then also my the data that I've collected over the years is that that is maybe um, the exception that, that that sort of trajectory. In other words, oftentimes what happens more often is when people leave their conservative church or get kicked out of it, leave their communities, they have, they are unable to find that same sort of community and connection and belonging and relationship and love. They're unable to find that outside the church. They, they try, they try just doing these meetup groups. So they try uh, the PTA or, or, or their neighbors, they try and there's, and they, and they're unable to find that same sort of community. Again, some people have, but I feel like that's the exception. So uh, I, I'm interested in the question like, or questions such as 
man, as messed up as the church can get, and of course we we the list is is myriad as to the ways that the church has done harm historically to people. As messed up as it is, also at the same time, it, it has been this social experiment that has existed for two thousand years. That's not nothing. So there, there, there is something about this, this rhythm, this model of gathering every seven days for, I don't know, singing and prayers and some sort of teaching and some sort of uh, ritual, some sort of that, that model where you gather every seven days and then in between that fill it in with like trying to do life together in community. That model has endured uh, and existed and it's still here and we're still like working our way through it. So I don't know that we should be too quick to to uh, t- toss that model aside and try and figure out some other way to meet these needs. So that's just part of why I'm still in the game of church. Um, but but I think I think people that that have left their conservative church or been kicked out of it, the reason why they still so the reason why they can't stay in church. The first part of that email makes a ton of sense. I can't stay in church because um, its leaders betrayed me. Uh, I can't stand church because it taught theology that um, did real damage to my psyche. Uh, I can't stand church because the abuse that I received, spiritual abuse uh, that I see, received there. I can't stand church because of the way that uh, the, the people made me feel like I didn't fit in because I didn't think like them or look like them or love the same people like them. So that part makes sense. I can't stand church. But then the interesting thing that you pointed out is, but why are people still wanting to find that community? And I think it's mm-hmm. because in part at the basis level Homo sapiens are relational beings, um, and we were we did not evolve to exist as solo beings. We find ourselves through relationship and community with other people. So we feel uh, we feel alone when we are alone, and that actually makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. And so people want to find church, I think, because there's still that deep longing to belong to something there's still that deep need mm. to be in a relationship and is uh, and it's just really hard to find outside of the model of the local church yeah i heard um i i heard our friend nadia bowles weber say one time she went through the just the the ritual or the rites of forgiveness in liturgical contexts and she talked about you bring all your baggage into this community and you're invited to be open and honest with it and spoken over you are the sacred words that have been spoken for, for centuries, Mm. son, daughter, child, your sins are forgiven. And then she paused and said, and you don't get that shit in yoga class. (laughs) (laughs) No. Yes. That is however you want to conceive of that phrase. And for some people that's triggering and I totally get it. So let's, Listen to what the trigger is saying, address the pain, and then maybe we can move through it and and hear it for what it is. That what that is saying is 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 just powerful, regardless of yeah. how you who you think says it, where you think it comes from, what do you think it means? I just love that. Like you don't get that message. Okay. Um, that at the at your deepest core, the biggest mistakes that you can make are not going to be the thing that ends you. It's not going to be the thing that defines you. It's not the thing that is most true about you. And it's not the end of you. Like you have perpetual forever forgiveness. Yeah. Um, That we, we need institutions. I'm sorry. We need institutions because institutions give us the, the mechanism and the people to be able to communicate that much needed message. Yeah. 100%. And I, I wonder too, 
maybe some of the reason the first part of that is I can't stand church exists is because what you've just described is the potential for beauty that the church possesses and historically the beauty that the church has, um, that, that the church has brought about. I mean, so many of our great social movements um, had their had their start in the church. Rodney Stark, in his great book, The Rise of Christianity, argues that Christianity became an, uh, a movement from the obscure origins in Galilee to becoming the dominant religion throughout an empire while still underground because of its service to the poor and disenfranchised. Mm. That it was this growth from the bottom. This is mm. the mustard seed Jesus talked about. So when that's the vision, when the vision is, your biggest mistake won't define you. And then you make your biggest mistake and the church kicks you out. Like the WTFness in that moment is yeah. so deeply pronounced because it's everything you were told it's not. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there, I, there, there might be a project that I'm working on underway about being hurt by the church, but I'll just leave it there for right now. I love it. And um, just before we move on to the, whatever the next topic is, when you talk about being hurt by the church, one of the things that I've found, and I'm curious if you found this as well in, in your work, one of the things I've found is that, so I've done quite a bit of talk therapy mm-hmm. over the last six years. And one of the things I've learned about the therapeutic process is that the part of the reason why it works is because when you're in the office of a therapist, it is supposed to be a uh, safe, non-judgmental space where you can talk about tell and in a sense relive some of your deepest pain and some of the deep stories that have happened to you the things that um the stories that when you think about your brain sends all sorts of fight flight freeze fawn like these are the things that really hold you back and when you retell these stories in a safe and loving environment with a person who reflects back to you just pure love your brain can begin to rewire and make new pathways to new emotional experiences so that suddenly the old things that caused you harm and pain are no longer causing you active present pain this is part of how therapy works what i've found about church is that those who have been wounded by the church uh it's very possible that the church might also be one of the best places for them to find healing and i've found this Mm. to be true because i found that uh, if, if our church sojourn grace collective, if we can, like a therapist's office, provide a safe, non-judgmental place where people can, in a sense, relive some of their old stories and their old wounds from their old church, but in response, receive a loving, safe, non-judgmental, uh, experience, it begins to rewire the brain for them. And it begins to bring them a type of spiritual healing from their spiritual wounds, that I'm not sure that they can fully get, whether it's at the therapist or just at going out to have coffee with a friend. Um, and so I want to be careful because I know that's not going to be true for everybody. But I have absolutely found that to be true at our church, that 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 a, a place like Sojourn has been able to provide a type of healing for church wounding. And I, I would not have expected that six years ago when we started our church. Uh, so it's been a pretty cool experience to, to have. Yeah. No, I love that. And I love that you guys are doing that. It's so, yeah, it's needed. I think, uh, I mean, it's been said a million different ways, but that the, when the church gathers together, it should look more like an AA meeting than anything else mm. where you just show up and say, I, I, I have a, I have a problem and I'm powerless over it. 
start there and then we'll sort out the rest. <laughs> yeah. Um, so back to the book, uh, you have two chapters, really what I would say are about wounds and healing to mm-hmm. some extent. Um, one of the chapters, chapter nine has to do with your past. Uh, you titled it relax. You've come so far. And the subtitle is what to do when you're mortified by your past beliefs and behavior. <laughs> um, and, and this is how so many seem to be ashamed or embarrassed about what they used to believe. Yeah. And then the second uh, chapter is about wounds that we receive from those who are genuinely concerned for our salvation. So people who write the letters, um, I've received these letters from people who call you out, uh, say they're praying for you, invite repentance, that kind of thing. What insights um, can you offer to one or both of those things, both how we deal with our past and how we receive wounds from those who genuinely love us what insights could you offer for those who are listening who might be walking through maybe one or both of those things? So to the person who finds themselves, so they've, they've underwent or they're undergoing a shift of some sort, and they find themselves in these moments of introspection, reflecting on things they used to believe, um, and they feel embarrassed by it. They feel shame. They feel regrets. They're like, how could I have ever believed that? Or how could I have ever treated people this way as a result of that belief? Um, what I try to say to them is, well, I invite them to, to show themselves as much grace, kindness, and compassion as they would likely extend to a friend who was, um, who is expressing shame and regret and embarrassment about something in the past. So we're usually better about giving that to others than we are to ourselves. And what I say in the book is it's, it's very likely uh, and very probable that the person you became back when you maybe had these beliefs that you're super embarrassed by that person. So let's say for me, it was like a 17 year old or a 21 year old version of myself. The person that I became, it's very likely that I had zero chance to be anyone other than that. When you stop and consider that you had no control over who, what parents or family you were born into, you had no control over what time in history you were born into. You had no control over what culture you were born into. You had no control over what religious household you were born into. You had no control over your early influences, teachers, family, uh, pastors, whatever. The person you became, you really didn't have any choice over. And so for us to sort of hold ourselves to a standard of, uh, how could I believe that? How could I have treated people like that? I want to say, relax. Like it's possible that you had no other option. That's just who you were sort of destined to become. Um, and, and so give yourself some kindness for that. And how great is it that you're no longer there anymore? That's amazing. Let's celebrate that. That's grace. That's gift. You probably didn't have much to do in, in that process either, which is sort of a thing that I've been thinking on lately, how people who undergo the shift uh, largely are as done as a result of forces beyond our uh, intention and awareness anyway. So it's just grace and gift that we've even shifted at all. Uh, yes. So to so look back and just have some kindness for yourself. Um, yeah, it, I get it. It's embarrassing. And I'm not sure you had a whole lot of choice. So, and then I call this the black belt of grace. So then the beautiful move to make is once you've been able to give that sort of kindness to yourself, like, oh my gosh, how could I believe that? Well, you know what? It's just, I don't know that I had many, uh, any other choice. Once you can define that, once you can learn to love yourself in that way, then you can start to love your neighbor as you love yourself. You can start 
to the people who are driving you crazy, to the people who you're like, how can you believe that? Or how can you think that way? To the people who um, completely trigger you and rub you the wrong way because their beliefs you find to be so offensive and oppressive. Now you can be like, oh, you know what? They might have not, like the the person that they are, maybe they had zero chance to be anyone else either. Like they're also just in many ways, a product of their environment and a product. And if I were to have been in their shoes and lived their life, it's very likely that I would have the same sort of beliefs that they do. So Thich Nhat Hanh talks about understanding as being the gateway to love. So when Mm -hmm. you seek to understand someone, that understanding, and you understand their why and their how and how they got to where they are and, People are the way people are the way they are for a damn good reason. That understanding then leads to compassion of, oh, well, of course you would think that way. Of course that you would respond that way. Of course, that makes so much sense. And then compassion leads to love. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think that um it makes a whole lot of sense that we get, you know, tripped up at our past selves sometimes. Uh, but the more that we can begin to just show ourselves kindness. I think the more we can then uh, learn to love ourselves and then we can extend that to other people. And that really is where the, the magic sauce of, of the Christian way begins to, uh, to, to take full effect. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah. And so many, well, here would be an indicator for those of you who are listening. Um, and I say, by the way, I grade myself on this. So this is not me preaching. This is me sharing. When you find yourself looking at somebody with disdain, or an eye roll or cynicism, or like Colby just said, how could they believe? Um, that's an indicator, not as much for me, that's an indicator, not as much about them, but about me. What about me is, hmm. is unhealed toward that person. When I look at others with fear of they're going to drive this whole thing off a cliff, they're on the slippery slope there, whatever, whatever it is. Um, again, that's an indicator within me of well, why am I scared? Um, what is it about them that causes, causes me fear? And I think in, in my process of continued healing, I I've gone through trying to point at the things in my past, not only that I'm grateful for, but what are the things that were given to me, maybe for a different reason entirely, but were actually the things that were my springboard into asking real and deep questions. And I've shared about this on the podcast before. For me, it was the introduction to the Bible. And then I realized it was a whole set of books that I had never heard read or talked about called the prophets. And I read it and they turned my world upside down. And that's what made me curious. Like Hmm. the Bible, the Bible messed me up. (laughs) But but yeah, I think there's, um, I think there's a world, there's a trove of wisdom in those two chapters of, uh, of that idea of start with yourself and then move on to others. That's so Hmm. helpful. I want to ask you one final question. You've, you finished the book with the chapter, stay open, my friends. And the subtitle is why I remain a Christian. Tell me about that. I, uh, for people who might've read my first book on clobber, I talk about my experience of getting fired from two churches in a span of two years, one for my theology and a second, just cause it was a, uh, a bad situation. Uh, but the point is, is I, I have been given, I would say, uh, uh, quite a few really good exit ramps, really, really enticing opportunities to get out of the game, not just as a professional minister. Um, you know, that, that those options were, were 
real available to me, but really just opt out of the whole religion thing in general. Um, I've had some good, good opportunities for that. And yet I've never taken them. And I've been trying to get curious about that over the last couple of years is why, why is that? And it wasn't until I read, or I guess reread this story in the gospels of, uh, Jesus was, was walking outside of Jericho and there's a big crowd there. And there was a blind man, uh, who was standing uh, on the side of the road doing his, you know, begging thing, trying to get people's attention. And he somehow knows that Jesus is passing by. I don't know why the guy knew who Jesus was or, or how he could help. But the story goes that the blind man cries out, uh, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people that are around Jesus uh, shush the blind man. Like, quiet. We have, we have things to do. We have places to go. Like, Jesus doesn't have time for you. Like, like quiet. And he just does it again, but he does it louder. Son of David, have Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he finally is able to get Jesus's attention. Now, you can imagine this scene. Jesus is, is in a crowd of people, probably many yards away from the blind man. And he had a couple, uh, Jesus had a couple options at that moment because the, the blind man caught his ear. Jesus could have been like, oh, someone's calling for me. I'm going to go over. And Jesus could have walked over to see who the blind man wanted. Uh, he could, or he could have just shouted across the road, like, yo, what, what, would you, what do you want? I'm here. I got you. Uh, or, or, or he could have even just, just uh, I don't know, healed him from afar. Like gee, there's these stories of Jesus healing people from long distances. He doesn't do any of those options. Instead, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, go uh, to that man, go get him and bring him here. And when I read that story a couple of years ago, what occurred to me was Jesus turns to the, the, the guys who had just moments before restricted access between mm. this blind man on the margins and Jesus. He turns to those guys who had just said, no, you can't uh, be a part of this thing. And he says, you go get him and bring him. And I realized, oh, that I think is what has kept me in this for so many years. Mm. Is I have been a part. Uh, so this is where I talk about my identities as a straight, uh, cis hat white male like i have all these layers of privilege all these identity markers in which the world has worked really well in my favor uh it, it is bent toward me and, and my people of my ilk um i realize that my people more or less have been the ones that has restricted access to so many people we have built these walls that have kept people on the margins we have oftentimes been the ones that have put people on the edges and then justified their discrimination and their oppression. And I realized part of what it keeps drawing me to this work is I hear this responsibility to be the person to, to I, my people, I was a part of the system that built the wall. It's up to me to break that thing down, go to the margins, find the people who have been held at arm's length from the divine love and say, oh, I am so sorry for how just moments ago I told you, shh, quiet. Like, you don't get to be a part mm. of this. You don't look the right way. You don't think the right way. You don't believe the right things. Um, I'm so sorry. Please, will, will you will you, will you let me, let's go together. Uh, let's go together and start following after this, this way of mercy and love. So I don't know if it answers your question, Michael, but I, I know that's, that helps me understand a bit more. And the other thing, when okay. I talk about the layers of privilege that I have, I realize that because so much of this world is bent uh, in my favor, I can be on the front lines of this thing and I can take arrows 
And for whatever reason, I can take multiple arrows and still keep going. Whereas I know that it might just be one arrow would be enough to take out the person behind me because mm-hmm. the world doesn't work in their favor. It, it, it works very much against them. And one arrow might be enough to take them out. If I can take a few on their behalf, huh, I'm, I'll take it every day. I'll take it every day because, uh, yeah. because for reasons I can't always put my finger on, I can still keep marching. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm still in this. I might redefine Christian totally different now than I did 10 years ago. I have a hunch I'll define it differently 10 years from now. Um, and like we said, the very beginning, it's a label that I get for some people it trips them up. Uh, but for me, I still identify as a person who sees in the way of Jesus, a way of abundant life. And I'm going to still stay in this game um, because there's still people on the margins that are, are longing to be loved just as they are. I think we should just be done now, man, dude. I always love talking to you. I love hearing your ideas, your insights, uh, your heart that, uh, that's the foundation of that. Thank you so much for investing in this book. I'm not going to say writing it. You clearly invested (laughs) in it. So thank you for that. Uh, where can our listeners find the shift? I appreciate your kindness, buddy. It means a lot. Um, so I've got a website, colbymartinonline.com. You can get links there to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local indie bookstore. Um, but fortunately, my mom gave me a unique name. So you can really just Google Colby Martin and you're going to find most everything that you need. You can follow me, Instagram, Twitter, at Colby Martin. Uh, but the stuff's out there is pretty easy to, to get to. Perfect. Well, hey, man, uh, once again, thanks for being here on the Changing Faith Podcast. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. And uh, for my Denver friends, if you are around this summer, Colby, for right now, uh, will be with us here at Denver Community Church in July, on July 12th. And again, that's pending closures, (laughs) in-person gatherings, everything else. But we're really, really hoping that that does happen. So if you're in Denver, stay tuned for more details. In the meantime, my prayer for those of you who find yourself on the journey, for those of you who are undergoing the shift, is that you would come to see this is not a rejection of your faith, but this is an expansion, not an abandonment of your spirituality, but a deepening of it. And in that place, my prayer is that you would come to encounter the endlessly knowable divine mystery who is love. And that is it for today, my friends. We will be back in a couple of weeks with episode 59. And until then, as always, much love and peace be with you.